I am honored beyond words to be with you all here this morning. My name is Will's Kitchen, and I am coming to you today from Crosslink Community Church up in Harrisonburg. And I got to tell you, I love you guys already. And here's why your mission, your vision, is a shared mission and vision with Crosslink Community Church in Harrisonburg. Our mission is to bless the valley, to impact the valley, and to make great the kingdom of God. How? How? Through sending, through discipling, through expanding the kingdom, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that the lost are brought in, so that the elect are brought in, and God's kingdom is enlarged. That's what you guys are about. So I feel at home today. I feel at home today. But I'm here today, not just with myself. I've got my family here, my wife Sarah, my herd. They're up in the, uh, in the balcony. We've got Brielle, who is 10, Lucas, who's 6, uh, Liam is 3, and Micah is 3 weeks old. So we've, we've got quite a, quite a crowd up there. But my role at Crosslink, just so you can get a little bit to know about me, is uh, I'm, I'm a church planter. We are in the process, the early stages, of preparing to send out a church, to plant a brand new church from the ground up somewhere. We don't even really know where yet, but that's what we're about. So I'm honored to be here with like-minded people. And uh, on top of that, I guess if, if people always want to know what's your hobbies, I'm a tree climber, I'm an arborist. So I am uh, one of the other things that I'm absolutely in love with Lebanon about. You guys have got, and I'm not just saying this to make you feel good, You've got some of the most beautiful trees in this area. Steward them well. Shepherd them well. They're a, they're a great benefit to you. So that's who I am. But you haven't come here today to hear about me. This isn't about me. It's never about the pastor. The pastor's duty is to hold forth Jesus as he is manifested here. And that's what we're going to do. We've worshipped in song. We've worshipped the Lord through prayer. And now we're going to worship by lending our eyes and ears, the eyes and ears of our heart, to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God Himself. And our focus this morning is going to be upon the first two verses of 1 John chapter 3, so I hope you'll begin turning there in your Bibles. And as you do, please join me in prayer. Blessed God, we are so thankful. We rejoice. We exalt Your name. We wait eagerly for You. We ask You to shower the mercies of heaven upon us through Your Word on this, Your day. We pray that where there may be ignorance on our part, that Your Word would be invigorated by Your Spirit to cast off our ignorance and that it would be replaced with knowledge that leads to holiness. Holiness of living and holiness of spirit. We pray that You would sanctify us. Your church purchased by the blood of Your dear Son to the end that we might bring glory to Your name in our community. That we would be known for our love. Make us like unto the Lord Jesus, O God. I pray that the passage we focus on this morning would leap off the page at us like a lion wherein we might get but even a mere glimpse of the majesty of Your mercy, kindness, and love towards vile sinners. For these three things, Lord, You have bestowed upon every one of Your children here through Christ. We pray that Your kingdom would be advanced 
and that your name would truly be made great among the nation. Bless our time together this Lord's Day, O Father. In the name of Christ, your Son, our beloved friend, Savior, prophet, priest, King, and our God's name we pray these things. Amen. Please stand in reverence and awe for the reading of the Word of the living God. 1 John chapter 3, we shall read verses 1-5. through Listen to these words. See how very much our Father loves us. For He calls us sinners, His children. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as He is pure. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As is usual, on any given Sunday, understanding the passage set in front of us depends greatly upon understanding what has come before it. Now, I have preached expositionally through the entire book of 1 John, five short chapters, but it took an entire year to do. I have not been able to do that with you all, but I'll try to give you a little background. 1 John is a letter, and John was a good letter writer. His thoughts flow well, they're coherent, intentional, and absolutely pregnant with meaning. The apostle is now embarking upon a didactic course aimed at strengthening God's people. He intends to teach us. Now what has he taught in 1 John prior to this point in chapter 3? He has taught us that it is impossible to name Christ genuinely as our Savior and yet walk through this life as if we were unsaved just as the Docetists and the Gnostics and the Antichrist we're doing in his day and time. It's impossible. Genuine salvation. And if you were going to write anything down this morning, write this down, because this encapsulates the message of the entire book of 1 John. Genuine salvation always, by necessity, produces genuine transformation. No longer can the Christian freely walk in a manner that is contrary to the commandment of God. He or she, instead, loves the law of the Lord. No longer can the Christian habitually harbor real and malicious hatred in their heart for another. Rather, the real Christian is equipped and prodded onward by the Holy Spirit to love their enemies and pray for them. In addition to these, 
The Christian is no longer to be ensnared by the trivial and silly things of this world, as is the case with unbelievers. The Christian is commanded to not be ruled by his or her bodily appetites, so as not to be enthralled by the lusts of the flesh. The Christian is to be content with what he has, so as not to covet his neighbor. And again, the Christian is to be humble towards all people, so as not to exalt his or herself beyond what is proper and reasonable, especially seeing as how their salvific status had nothing to do with them and everything to do with King Jesus. We have nothing to boast about other than in the magnificent grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Therefore, be humble in your relation to your fellow man, whether they be saved or not. You are not better than they. Christians are called to a higher plane of living, which utterly differentiates and distinguishes them from the world of the lost, unsaved and unregenerate men. In summary, the great difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is this. The Christian has, as the Apostle John says, been born of God. The Apostle says such with great explication in the 29th verse of chapter 2 of this book that we're in this morning. And he says this, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is what? Born of Him. Born of Him. If God is truly righteous, and He is, then we know that when a man or a woman is born again of Him, or by Him, or through Him, that the product or result of that rebirth will be righteousness as well. Righteousness begets righteousness. A good tree does not produce bad fruit. It produces good fruit. This rebirth, so mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 29, becomes the central theme of chapter 3. And in the first verse of chapter 3, John expresses something very important regarding our rebirth that is vital to understand. He expresses the first cause of our rebirth. And he expresses the reason for our rebirth. And in the second verse, he will teach us concerning the substance of our rebirth. And the first two clauses of verse 1 reads this way, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. Now here is a point where I think it is really helpful to have a clear and super literal rendering of the Greek text. And doing this isn't always helpful, but here in this instance, it very much is. So, listen to this. Behold what sort of love the Father has gifted to us so that we would be called children of God. That helps, that helps to frame things a little better, doesn't it? This gift of the rebirth. Not a debt owed. Not something that you reach out and earn it. Go get them, tiger. It's a gift. It's a gift. The apostle firstly beckons us to behold something. What is it? What are we to behold? He says, look closely. Feast your heart's eyes upon something. What is it? 
we are implored to behold the salvific love of God towards really good people. Towards people who deserve a good pat on the back. Towards sinners. Criminals, lawbreakers. John does not yet tell us what this love is made of, but John does tell us why. The why of God's salvific love. What end does the King of glory have in mind when He showers His love upon a man or a woman? The second clause of verse 1. And this is important. Words are important, friends. They have meaning. So that. If I say Sally jumped the creek so that she wouldn't get wet, what is that so that telling you? It tells you why she jumped the creek. So that we would be called children of God. Being a child of God is to be saved. In order for one to be saved, God must pour out His salvific love upon them. God's love towards the one He purposes to save is the causal agent of salvation for that man or woman. And that is why John says in the final clause of verse 1, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. It did not know Him because He did not reveal Himself savingly to them. And that's just a reality that we have to face. It's an uncomfortable one, but it's reality nonetheless. Therefore, if we are His, if we are of God, if we have been born of Him, if we are His children, neither does the world know us. We are absolutely foreign to them. We are alien to them. Has anyone ever told you they love you? Did they tell you with their words that they love you, and yet their actions don't necessarily back that up? We have all felt it. I have, and you have. You see, it's one thing for someone to say they love you. It's another thing altogether when they tell you they love you and show you that by their actions. It is the action of love that is the substance of love. To say it simply, real love produces real action on the part of the one professing to love. So when I read John's words, behold what sort of love the Father has gifted to us, I find myself asking the question, how? How has God loved me? What has He done for me? What is the substance of God's love that makes it known to me in the first place? How do I know that God is a God who loves? So to answer that question, we look at verse 2. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Because God has loved His people, even while they were yet sinners, He has brought forth salvation for them. He has manifested or shown His love to sinners through a Savior. He sent forth Jesus, the Messiah, who is Himself God. And in verse 2, when we read mention of God, we should understand that it is the second person of the Trinity who is in view and how do we know this? Because John tells us that this God will, at some point in the future, appear in glory. 
He will appear. And remember that this same apostle, John, in the beginning of his gospel account, wrote the words, For no one has seen God at any time. And we can read into that that nor will they. But the unique God, the monogamous Theos, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him to us. That's the God that's in view here. He had already appeared in humanity, but He is to be revealed to all in the same glory which Peter, James, and John had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. This God in verse 2, therefore, can only be Jesus. It cannot be the Father that John has in mind. We, those of us who believe, are the children of the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He brought us forth from death to life. How? By His own blood. So how do we know that God the Father is a God of love for sinners? His love was shown to be real in that He sent forth Jesus of Nazareth to be our Christ. That's love in action. He came to save us from the tyranny of sin. He will return to usher us into glory. What sort of glory, you might ask? Dear friends, now this gives me goosebumps. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. Now, what, what do we mean by that? Like Him. Like Him. Shiny? Is that all, is that all we think about? No. What will we be? We will be sinless. We will be pure. Does that, what does that do to your heart to think about? Does it hit your heart and just bounce right back off of it? Because if it does, I worry for your soul. Or does the thought of finally being pure and absolutely sinless, no longer giving grievance to the Spirit of God, make you crave it now? Does that make you say, come Lord Jesus, please, to be free from sin? Think on these things. He will return and He will finally and fully transform us into what we were always meant to be. And what's that? We were meant to be like unto Him. Am I saying we will be gods like the Mormons? No. But we will be made perfectly holy. We will be made perfectly pure. We will be glorified as He is glorified. We will see Him as He is and as we are. What blessed, blessed hope the church has. God loved us, and in His love, He put in place that which we needed above all. And what is that? It's righteousness. What is the one thing we do not have that is absolutely required to not be at enmity with God? Jesus said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisee, you will perish. 
the one thing we need, the one thing we cannot muster up from within ourselves because we are fallen sons and daughters of Adam, Christ hands over to us freely on the cross as the cup of God's wrath is poured upon Him. And He says, take it. My righteousness is yours. What love. What love. But I would like for us to look at the love of Christ from a somewhat different perspective to finish up this morning and to give you something deep and profound to think on this week. At least I think it's deep and profound. I'm not that smart. Turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 specifically. I'm going to read verses 13 through 22. Oh, I love this. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle to the Gentiles, says. For He, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. Such an important phrase. Through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Genuine salvation produces by necessity genuine transformation. Our Lord Jesus is God. He is the Creator, not just of some things, not like the Jehovah's Witnesses propose, that the Father first created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. No, He is the Creator of all things. Whether those things be in heaven or earth, He made them by the word of His own power. Paul says so. Will we doubt Paul? Will we doubt God's word? He made peace for us, Jesus did. Through the blood of His cross. Did you get that? Our Savior nurtured the very sapling. Think on this. The very sapling that would grow into the tree from which His own cross would be made. He sustained that little seed as it went into the ground and received water and germinated and uprose a little, a little spriggan of a tree. And he's God, he's watching from heaven and he sees this growing and he says, this tree, this tree, this one, I will be nailed to it and pour out my blood for the sins of my church. 
the Lord Jesus placed the very iron ore in the dirt from whence the nails would be made, which would pierce His hands and feet. Our King placed the thought into the mind of man to fashion the very tools which would hollow out the mortises upon His cross. And it was the word of His own mouth that caused Golgotha to rise from the plains below wherein He would hang with criminals. And it was Christ Himself that fashioned the nerve endings of His own human body in His mother's womb, which would endure the searing pain of the most torturous form of death known to man at that time. It was the Lord Jesus who emptied Himself of His glorious prerogative and His heavenly privilege as God to stand in the stead of His people as the cup of the Father's wrath was poured out upon His head to which He cried out, Father, why have You forsaken Me? Dear people, this is love manifested in action. Dear Christian, did you know that God loves you? Do you see it now? Like an earthly father that sacrifices his own flesh to run into a burning house to save his son or daughter. Like a mother hen that places her own feeble body between her chicks and an enraged cobra. And as with these instances, so too is it with Christ and His people. From all eternity, our Lord had set His face toward Calvary like a flint and He did it all out of love for you and for me. All out of love. So how then should we live in response? Difficult. But for starters, if you are saved, if you are genuinely converted, if you are redeemed, stop doubting the love of God for you. Stop it. When things go sideways, and they do all the time, Kill that thought in your mind that God somehow despises you. That He's wagging His finger at you. If you are indeed in Christ, the Father would have to hate His own Son in order to hate you. You ever thought through this? Time after time after time after time in the New Testament, we read that Christians are in Christ, right? If Christ has died for you, if Christ has atoned for your sin, there is no hatred in the heart of God for you. Paul says it so clearly. There is now, therefore, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why do we doubt His Word? Christian God loves you. And He means you well in everything He sovereignly brings into your life. All the good things are meant to bring you joy. All the bad things, the car accidents, 
the negative balance in a bank account, even the cancer, are meant to conform you to the image of Christ, to sanctify you, to purify you, to make you holy, which shows that even those bad things, and I'm not saying they're not bad things, are meant for your good. We all know that verse, right? Romans 8.28, we love it. But do we ever think through its final conclusion? God causes all things to work together for what? Good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, even the cancer. That's hard to stomach. But it's the reality of the Word of God. He loves you if you are in Christ. Lean into His love this week, Christian. When you sin, notice I did not say if you sin, when you sin, run to Him in prayer rather than fleeing from Him in terror. There is forgiveness at the foot of Jesus' cross. And to the unbeliever here, to the one who if they are examining their lives honestly, who says to their friends in the chair beside them, yeah, I'm saved. But that supposed salvation has not produced real transformation. To the one who is actually lost, to the one who is self-deceived, to the one who is at enmity with God, the one whom Psalm 5.5 says God hates, Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. Dear lost one. Verbose. This is exactly what it says. God hates the worker of iniquity. That's in the text. To you, what do I say to you? Christ died to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Paul said those words, but those apply to us as well. Look to Jesus. The righteousness that you know you need, you will never, ever, ever find it within yourself. It is found in someone. It is found in a person, but that person is not you. That person is none other than Jesus. Look to Jesus in faith. Place your trust, your hope for eternity, your hope for forgiveness and reconciliation with God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. He is the Gospel. The Gospel is not a formula of words. It is not a step-by-step, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, do all the things, and then you're done. The Gospel is a person. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look to Him or perish. He has loved sinners. There's forgiveness at the foot of Jesus' cross. Now I'd like to close today with the words of this song which I believe captures the heart of God's love for sinners in poetic form. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. 
And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, never more. His love never changes. Pray with me, please. Father, of all the things we could approach your throne and say, for all the thoughts our minds can think, for all the feelings that our hearts can feel, in light of what you have done for criminals and lawbreakers through the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus, all else seems utterly frivolous. Make us a people, O God, whose hearts are filled with thanksgiving continually, not for cars or houses or food or anything silly. Fill us with thankfulness that our eternities are secure because you have loved. And you have done it so well, Father. How could we add anything to it? That your own Son condescended, was born of woman, lived under the law perfectly, righteously, He alone being worthy of eternal life in the body. But He, out of His great love with which He loved us, poured out His blood in our stead. And in so doing, handed us freely that which we needed above all which is communion with you rightness with you peace with you I pray that you would give us all this day Lord a fresh comprehension of the absolute enormity of that so that we would turn our eyes towards heaven away from the plains of this world, which is dead and dying, and that we would walk after you and seek after you all the days of our life because of what you have done for us through the gospel, the good news, the message concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. Father, we love you. In Christ's name, we pray these things to you. Amen.